wonderful. Thank you for that. It's Father's Day, and I woke up before anyone was even out of bed at my house this morning. So I don't know about the rest of you fathers, but all I really need today is good food for lunch and a nap somewhere along the way. Just simple things. That's all I ask for. But uh, I'm so glad to be back. We missed you last week. We were on vacation and went to the... Um, South, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and it's always a joy to be back at First Baptist Church worshiping with you this morning. Tremper Longman writes, The book of Psalms is the literary sanctuary. Like the physical sanctuary structures of the Old Testament, it offers a textual holy place where humans share their joys and struggles with brutal honesty in God's presence. I think that's why so many of us are drawn to the book of the Psalms. Because you see these high, very high highs. People just exalting God in worship. And then the brutal honesty of those very low lows where they write out the songs of lament. They say, God, where are you? I speak and you don't listen. People rejoicing and people lamenting. And so I think we're drawn there for that reason. We started the month in Psalm 139 and I said I wanted to spend the summer in the Psalms and I found that the Psalms have been very refreshing I, I generally turn there during the summer and so I plan for us to find some refreshment there as we study these Psalms together over the next several weeks there are plenty of resources for learning about the structure and the themes that are found within the Psalms so I'm not going to really spend a lot of time there but I do want to briefly mention since we're in Psalm 127 this morning that Psalms does contain a book within the book. They're called the Songs of the Ascent, or the Songs of the Ascents. So these are 15 Psalms that are grouped together, Psalm 120 to 134. And each of them carry the headline, or the header, Song of the Ascents. Now even though it has that header, there's a little bit of confusion, or speculation maybe, about what that really means. So I thought I'd give a little bit of background there. Um, some people think because there's 15 psalms, this is the eighth, one we'll, the one we'll be looking at this morning is the eighth of the 15 songs of the ascent. There are 15 of them which connects with the 15 steps between the, the women's courtyard and the men's courtyard at the temple complex. And so some say that perhaps on each of those steps there was a different song that was sung and it was these psalms of the ascent. Now I'm not sure that that's accurate. There's a lot of kind of pushback against that. But I will tell you generally what most people believe about these 15 psalms, these songs of the ascent. They believe them to be songs of pilgrimage. So that as the Jews would go up to Jerusalem, as they would travel there into Jerusalem, that these songs would play a role in their pilgrimage, in their journey. As they went up for those high, uh, high holy days, for the Passover, for uh, the Day of Atonement, for Pentecost that these songs would show up in their journey as they traveled along. Several weeks ago, we looked at Jesus and Mary and Joseph as they traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. And remember along the way, uh, as they were traveling back, they, missed, they lost Jesus, they found him in the temple. But we said as a part of that journey that this was a big, it was a community affair. You know, several families that would travel together, they probably had lots of traditions about what they would do along the way. So some contend that these songs of the ascent played a role in that journey up to Jerusalem. So it very well may be that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, as they traveled up to Jerusalem for the Passover, would sing 
together, maybe with others, Psalm 127. This psalm is written by Solomon, who's the son of David. He was a king over Israel. He wrote two psalms, uh, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Now we remember uh, Solomon as a king filled with wisdom, a man of wisdom. And we associate him most closely with the book of Proverbs. Well, it makes sense because this psalm really doesn't fit into a lot of the categories that people make for the psalms. And so people call it a psalm of wisdom. Because it sounds a little bit more like a proverb than it does the psalms. So join with me now as I read to you Psalm 127. We'll read the whole thing, verses 1 through 5. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So you probably notice that it's divided almost up into two stanzas that we'll look at this morning. But the psalm demonstrates that it is meaningless to seek success in your own ability, in your own strength. What I propose to you today from Psalm 127 is that the blessed life comes only from God. So we're going to first look at the vanities that Solomon describes in the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, before we turn towards stanza, the first stanza, before we turn to the second stanza, where Solomon describes um, the source of blessing. So let's begin by looking at verse 1 as we consider the vanity of control. Solomon is cited as the author of this psalm. And he is mo- his most famous recorded words are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Perhaps you remember it in your version that might say meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. It sounds a whole lot like Psalm 127, doesn't it? They labor in vain. The watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early. So all is vanity is kind of the theme of this chapter. So is Ecclesiastes 1-2 true? Is everything truly vanity? Is everything truly meaningless? I would say the answer to that question is yes if we leave God out of the picture. Life is meaningless without God. So he writes, unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord guards. And so the critical factor for our life and our life's work is God's activity, not ours. It's God's actions, not ours, that matter most. So building is useless unless the Lord builds the house. Precautions are useless unless God watches over the city. Unless the Lord blesses our work, unless the Lord blesses our family, our labor, no matter how intense your work is, is in vain. So what does this mean? Does God actually build? Is God known as one who builds houses? Is he known as a builder? 
Well, the scriptures speak of God as a builder over and over again. In the Old Testament, we read Amos. Amos describes God as the one who built a house in the heavens. The psalmist says he built a sanctuary in Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament, we discover that God is consistently building a household. That's what he's doing. He is described as building Zion, and he's also building up communities that live within the city of Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. That's what he's known for. He builds Jerusalem's walls. He builds David's throne. He's known as the builder of David's throne. And he rebuilds Judah and Israel after the exile. So, God is a builder, unless God builds the house. And he wants to be the critical player in the building up of your household. He wants to be a partner with you. He wants to be involved with you. When Solomon writes meaningless, all is meaningless in Ecclesiastes, he assumes that God is not involved in the endeavors of the person who is at work. His point is, you may be successful. You may build something great. You may leave an, a wonderful legacy of something behind, but it's pointless because God's not involved. In the end, you die, and all is meaningless. That's what he says here. But in this psalm, Solomon says something different. The idea here is God can be involved in the process of our lives. And it's only by his involvement that we will experience what could amount to success and fulfillment. <clears throat> Fathers, you have a lot of responsibilities in life. But can I remind you that your involvement in the building up of your home is among the most important, most critical responsibilities that you have. At any given moment, there are going to be all sorts of things clamoring for your attention. But do not neglect paying attention to your responsibility as a father and as a husband. As you may be incredible, and you may be incredible as a father, but all of that is meaningless unless you build your household on the foundation of God. Building constitutes one of life's great areas of interest. It's our, the enterprising effect of human uh, effort. But then he turns to attention to another big area, which is its conflicts. So there's us building, and then there's the conflicts we face. He says, unless the Lord guards the city. Well, is God known as one who guards? In fact, throughout the Psalms, you can read through the Psalms. He's described as the one who guards the souls of the godly. He's known as the one who guards the simple. He guards our lives and so on and so forth. So this Psalm only offers two possibilities. Our success and protection will either be due to the Lord's doing or it will be pointless. There is no third option. Either the Lord has done it or it's meaningless. So we find that the Lord is essential for even the most basic endeavors in life. Building, guarding. God is critical for those endeavors. John Golden Gay writes, We can plan something carefully, work hard at it, and be responsible and creative in implementing our plans and everything go wrong in a way we could have never have foreseen. Have you ever experienced that before? Best laid plans of mice and men. Every time, right? I can relate to this, this, uh, this quote here. 
since it's Father's Day, I won't speak to you about my successes but my failures. I am not the fix-it father stereotype. I don't, I'm not very good at fixing things or tinkering with things. I get it honest, neither was my dad. And I'm pretty sure his dad wasn't either. You know, we are more of the um, break things type of people, you know. We are more of the hire somebody to fix that kind of people, you know. It doesn't mean we don't try. It's just that doesn't come. Some of you live in families where you have the fix-it Felixes. Well, we are the Wreck-It Ralphs, you know. That's kind of where I come from. And so I go to hang drapes and I knock a hole in the wall, you know. I go to fix a drip and it turns into some huge explosion of water in the house. In fact, a few weeks ago, I needed to fix the, the, uh, the handles in the shower. I needed to replace them. I know I shouldn't do that, but I thought that I'll, I'll try to do that. And so I removed it, and then I realized, oh, it's not just the, not, it's just, not just the handles that's the problem. I needed to replace the stem valve that's coming out of the pipe, and I thought, maybe I could do that. So I go to Lowe's, and I find where they have these, and I thought, I'll YouTube this. And then somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, Wes do not do this because as soon as you turn off the water to the house and you go to replace this this problem will become huge and there will be no water in our home for days and you will no longer be welcome here so coming to my senses I said Rachel we need to hire a plumber so uh, that's kind of how we've handled that one amen I got it so there's more of you around here well I hope that you'll notice this morning is that God is still at work in creation. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 shows how God works. But the point is, He still works. We are not in control. He is. And He wants to be involved in the building and the watching over of our lives. In Edinburgh, Scotland, the city motto is Nisi Dominus Frusta. It actually comes from the first words of this psalm, which translated, say, without the Lord frustration I wonder if you've ever experienced that maybe you know some people you could attach that motto to their lives where they have tried to live their life without the Lord and they have only found frustration so how do we apply this passage to our lives first of all we recognize God works in Genesis 1 and 2 God created he, he ex exerted great energy in uh, separate, creating the, pulling the light from the day, separating the dry land from the sea, of, of creating the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field. He took dirt, breathed into it, created human life. And then he rested, but he wasn't done. God still works. The psalm says the Lord builds the house. The Lord watches over the city. In other words, the work of God did not stop on the seventh day of creation. God continues to work. In fact, he works constantly. That means that work can be meaningful. Sometimes you think what you do as a job is meaningless. But God says our work can be meaningful, or he demonstrates that. So we should recognize that part of what God does is he works in, with, and through those who are working for him and in his name. Secondly, God makes our work meaningful. The psalmist says our labor is in vain, but God gives it meaning. So that means if you're an architect or a carpenter, roofer, bricklayer, plumber, whatever, your work, you could put together this structure and it could be meaningless, even though it looks fantastic. But if you work with God and for his glory, then it can be very meaningful. 
The same thing with whatever you do in your life. You can feel like what I'm doing is just something I'm doing. But if you see yourselves as working for the Lord and with the Lord and to bring him glory, your job, your work can be meaningful. The important thing is to look to God for meaning in your labor. So part of what Solomon is speaking about in this verse is control. We want the hammer in our hand so we can control the outcome. We place watchmen on the walls to make sure that we're safe. But control is an illusion. I've learned that we control so very little in life. Most of what we control is how we will respond. Because when the successes come and the setbacks come, how are we going to respond? What's our attitude going to be? So control is meaningless. Next, the psalmist considers the vanity of success. He says in verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. There's something here for everyone. How many of you in the room hate to wake up early? You can't stand it. You cannot stand to wake up early. Anybody out there? Okay, you're not wanting to admit it. How many of you hate to stay up late? Anybody out there who hates to stay up late? There are a few of you who are silently admitting it. It's okay. The Lord knows, right? The point is, it doesn't matter. All of it's in vain. And then he seems to say it's vain for you to work hard for food that you barely get to enjoy. So what's his point? Well, we realize we are, when we realize we're not in control, or at least we recognize there are so many factors outside of our control, so we're tempted to do what? Overcompensate. Well, we've got to wake up very early. You know, we've got to work real hard. We don't know what's going to come. We've got to bar build barns and bigger barns to store up in case something happens. So we believe the strength of our will will make the difference. So we lengthen the workday. We increase the intensity of the workday. We take on more work. We become slaves to an impossible schedule. We even rush our meals to fit in the work, not enjoying the time and the company that we have around the table. The psalmist says we do so in vain. It's all meaningless if we think the success that we will achieve by this exaggerated labor is going to fulfill our souls. We will not find blessing in our own strength. So the psalmist shifts his attention and we begin to see the source of blessing in life. The last part of verse 2 says, For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Daniel Estes writes, While humans are exhausting themselves in their futile attempts, the Lord blesses those he loves. What is the blessing? Well, the translators, some say, might in your version it might say, he blesses them with sleep. That's a blessing from God, that he actually gives us the ability to rest. The, the, our version here, the New American Standard here, says that while we are sleeping, God keeps working. He gives increase in our sleep. He gives to us in our sleep. Either way, the blessing involves rest. So God works, and we must work. This is not a psalm about laziness. Because you can say, well, I'll just let God build. I'll just let God watch. And I'm just going to sit back and relax. That is not what this is saying. It says that we recognize God's the source of the blessing of all of those things. And so we rely on him. So I believe the psalmist is reminding us that after we have worked, we can lie down to rest and we can leave the outcome in God's hands. We do all we can and then we leave the rest to God. There are many who are here in this room or joining us by television maybe right now or online, or that experience the grind of achievement. You feel intense pressure to perform and to succeed and to give yourself no rest. So you respond to this grind with overachievement, with intense labor, because 
Success and earthly reward have become an idol to you. So you just work, work, work. I believe there is a simple message contained in this passage for the one who bears the burden of responsibility to, as the breadwinner, as the, the leader of the household. And it, it's to do this, to re, who, who feel tempted to respond in this way. And the message is this, relax. That's the message. Isn't that amazing? That's what God's saying. We know that in the United States, people are getting less and less sleep to be able to do more work. There's this significant sleep deficit, they say, in the workforce. And you know what? Sleep deprivation is unhealthy. Wouldn't it be nice to think that the church of Jesus Christ could model a different way of living, a different way of working? We don't have to fall victim to the grind in that way. There is a different way to be human and productive, and there's a different way to seek fulfillment. So the first two verses illustrate that labor apart from the Lord is empty. And now, let's look at the source of true meaning, fulfillment and blessing, in verses 3 through 5, the second stanza. He says in verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Solomon describes children as a reward for a father. Sometimes fathers see children as liabilities. I don't know about your kids. Mine require a lot of money. You know, they require a lot of time and effort and energy. They eat a lot. They break a lot of things. You know, they absolutely wear me out. It would be hard in human terms to calculate them as assets. <laughs> but of course, in an ancient agrarian society, children increase the workforce. They are more obviously assets to a dad in that day. Some of you may have grown up in households like that. But there's something else at play here. J.M. Boyce points out, then as now, the family was the basic unit and most important element of society. The only difference is that the ancient Jew knew it and we generally do not. Dads, next to your personal relationship with the Lord, there is nothing more important than your families. This world will tell you otherwise. But the family is what is most important. In our society... I believe the family is under attack. But the first institution ordained by God, it was not the church, it was not government, it was the family. So your commitment should be to God and then to your home, not to other things. So he writes that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. I think that's a very powerful, very um, uh, illustrious simile there. Arrows are this offensive weapon. And they're meant to be used against a long-range target. You don't wait till the man with the sword gets close to fire the arrow, right? You do it while they are far away. Well, our children are extensions of ourselves. And arrows are propelled by the strength of the one pulling the bow. And they are aimed by the, uh, by the archer. So parents, fathers, we draw the string of the bow by the work that we put into it. By the effort we put into parenthood, to fatherhood. And we also aim our children in the way they should go. So we put great work into that. And we should play the long game here. Because our children are extensions of ourselves. They have the ability to extend our influence far beyond what we can do in human terms. So the psalmist writes, blessed is the man who has a quiver full of arrows. Of course, blessed is translated as happy. Now, there's this temptation in our world to just seek personal happiness. 
And so you think as a dad, I just want to be happy today. It's Father's Day, just leave me alone and let me be happy. But the psalmist says that happiness is found in your role as a father, as a parent. Because the blessing for the parent is the child. So the source of all blessing is not in our own ability to perform, but in the grace of God. And we see here that God's blessing is visible through the existence of the family. We just went on family vacation. It involved long road trips, lots of bathroom breaks, an extra measure of complaining, a good bit of arguing. But for the record, my favorite time is time spent with my family. And I am thankful for the blessing that they are to me. I know I am not good enough to have earned them, good enough to have performed to create them. I, it is a gift from God. He is the one who gives us family. So let me state clearly here, the growth of a family is God's work. Family is God's idea. Children come from him. So what does God do? He builds the home and he builds the family that lives in the home. He constructs the walls of the city and guards over it. And he raises up the families who live in the city and are protected by it. So it only follows that we must thank God for our families and look to him for wisdom to raise them rightly because he is the source of it all. Secondly, God's blessing on the city begins with his blessing on the family. I think a nation should always be reminded of the critical position of the home. As I said, I think we're seeing a downgrade of the family in our culture today. Families are disintegrating, children are neglected, and violent crimes are soaring. I contend that if families are neglected and if they decline, the entire society will decline with it. And so the point of Psalm 127 is that children are a blessing from God and they, with their parents, make up the vital foundation blocks for a healthy, thriving society, the city. And so God's blessing on the city begins with his blessing on the family. Our, and so if our families stand, our cities will stand. Finally, we cannot raise our families without God. If it's vain to build a house without God, if it's meaningless to set guards over a city without God watching, then how much greater of a folly is it to try and raise a family without God? Ancient cities generally were concerned about enemies on the outside of the walls. But we carry the seeds of destructions within us. And we pass that along to our children. We are sinful people. We have rebellious spirits. We have this inborn tendency to turn our backs on God. And just like ourselves, our children are rebellious, are obstinate, are self-centered, and wayward. That's not a new thing. That began with time. So what do we do? We must seek God's help and do everything we are told to do in order to raise our children well. We do that by praying for our children. We do that by teaching scriptures to our children. Don't put your children on loan here in the student ministry or downstairs with Pastor. You are to teach your children the scriptures in the home. You are to bring them to church, but you have responsibility there. No more of this do what I say and not what I do thing. We are the models for our children. So if we do this, the work extended on our families will not be worthless. On the contrary, I believe God will bless us and our children too. The grind of the society that you live in will push you to seek success through achievement. By building with your own hands. By looking out for number one. 
on your own and by finding fulfillment through the highs of success no matter the cost. But the psalmist reminds us that thinking we control our lives is meaningless. Believing we can uh, achieve lasting success by our own efforts and in our own strength is pointless. The blessed life, the success and meaning we seek is found only in a life blessed by God. So he's the builder. He watches over us. He gives the increase. The psalmist here literally means houses, cities, and families. But J.M. Boyce points out that this is a pilgrim psalm. So it draws our attention to the city of God. It's only the Lord who can make you into a temple that can house the Holy Spirit. You come before him sinful and in a helpless state. But God, by giving us Jesus, can transform you through forgiveness and make you right. And we don't earn Jesus, but Ephesians 2.8 says, uh, It is by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. And that gift gives us access to the city where God has laid the foundations where he is the architect and builder of the city. And the blessing of the Christian life is the spiritual family. God gives us a spiritual family. In fact, he tells us we can join him in the effort by going, by preaching the gospel, by making disciples. So today, rather than living in your own strength, recognize that it is the Lord who builds, it is the Lord who guards, and it is the Lord who blesses our families. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for this time to come and worship you in an ancient way as we study this psalm of Solomon, the song of ascent. And so now, God, as we hear the word, now help us to apply it in our own hearts. God, I pray for those out here that need to respond to you. We pray that today would be the day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. Perhaps God's speaking to your heart. Maybe he already has, and you've made a decision to trust Christ. You want to come and join the church. You want to find out more information about that. You want to follow in believer's baptism. Now's the time to respond. Maybe you have something else that you need to make, uh, to speak with someone with. I'm going to be down front. I'm going to invite you to stand, and as our choir sings, you respond. So you stand, our choir sings, you respond.